Amen, church. You can go and grab your Bibles and open up with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms. And let's go to the Lord again for a word of prayer. Just ask for his help. Lord, we're grateful for this morning. We're, we're grateful for the gift of your word. And Lord, we believe not only that you have spoken through your word, but you continue to speak through your word. And Father, we pray that you would see fit to do that today. We come to you as people who are weak and needy. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would show grace to us this morning, that you would teach us, that you would correct us, that our eyes would be pointed back to the cross where we would see Christ and where our hope would be anchored. And we ask all this in his great name. Amen. We're going to be in the 39th Psalm together this morning. I mentioned to you last week that I don't think that there's a book in the Bible that, that does more good for my soul personally when I study it than the Psalms do. And I, I don't think that's a unique experience to me. It seems like as you read great Christians over the years, over and over, you find these Christians relying heavily on the Psalms. Uh, some of you are taking part in our book club right now as a church, and we're reading the, the book Contending for Our All, which is given these three biographical sketches of these men who stood for the truth in the midst of this fray of controversy. And one of the men that's highlighted in that book is Athanasius. Athanasius was a church father who lived back in the fourth century and he stood against the, the Arian heresy to much personal cost to himself. And Athanasius loved the Psalms. Listen to what he wrote about the Psalms. He wrote, I believe that a man can find nothing more glorious than these Psalms. For they embrace the whole of life, the affections of his mind, and the motions of his soul. To praise and glorify God, he can select a psalm suited to every occasion. And thus we'll find that they were written for him. I think he was right. You can find a psalm that is perfectly suited for every occasion. Including occasions of suffering. In fact... You don't have to look all that long to find a psalm that is written for suffering. If you don't have a whole lot of experience in the psalms, or maybe if you've just heard an occasional psalm read as a call to worship, you might have the idea that the psalms are just happy praise choruses. But that couldn't be further from the truth. There are actually different categories of psalms. And the largest category of psalms are psalms of lament. Roughly a third of the Psalter is made up of these Psalms of Lament. Psalms of Lament are Psalms that are written out of struggle. Psalms of Lament show us how to, how to wrestle with God out of our suffering. And that's what Psalm 39 is. I, I mentioned a few weeks ago in Psalm 37 that Psalm 37 sounds like something you would read in Proverbs. Well, Psalm 39 sounds like something you might read in Ecclesiastes. There's a lot in Psalm 39 that sounds like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And you'll notice that there's a heading to this psalm. If your Bible's open to Psalm 39, the heading is the superscription to the chief musician, to Jedithon, a psalm of David. So this is a psalm written by David to the chief musician. And we're given a particular name here. It's given off to Jedithon. That, that name is mentioned in three different psalms. So we have, this is one of three psalms that are addressed to this man named Jedithon. And we're told in Chronicles that he is one of the men that David appointed to lead the corporate worship in the temple. So David wrote this psalm and he hands it over to this man who is, maybe he's the one who set it to music, or at the very least he's being, being called to use this psalm for corporate worship. 
So with that said, let's go and read the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 39. David writes, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. My my heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days. That I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you've made my days as henbreadths. And my ages is nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely, every man walks about like a shadow. Surely, they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Now, um, Psalm 39 has a lot of similarities to the psalm we looked at last week, Psalm 38. There's a lot of similar language that's used. And you'll remember Psalm 38 was a psalm of confession. Psalm 38 is where David is experiencing the hand of God's discipline in his life. And as David is feeling the weight of discipline, he finally breaks out and confesses his sin to God and turns to God in repentance. Well, in Psalm 39, it seems like David is still experiencing the discipline for his sin. Now, he's already confessed his sin, but confession doesn't mean the consequences immediately go away. So he's confessed his sin But David is still suffering. He's still dealing with the consequences of his sin. And from this position of suffering, David begins to pray. That's what Psalm 39 is. It's this prayer from David from suffering. And I want to look at it under four headings, four lessons that we might garner about how to suffer. Number one, suffer quietly. Do you notice how David begins in verse 1? He says, I said... I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. So get what's happening. David is facing hardship on the outside. He's in knots on the inside. David is hurting. So what is it that we tend to do when we're hurting? I'll I'll describe it this way. In our house, we have this uh, wooden wagon that a friend made years ago who's passed away now. But it sits in our den right at the end of our love seat. And Courtney keeps blankets and stuff in it. So if you're walking from our den toward our kitchen, this wagon is positioned so about 50% of the time you're going to stub your toe on it when you walk by. Well, when you do that, what is the immediate reaction? Is it to stay quiet or is it to say something? If you hit your finger with a hammer... Something wants to come out, right? Well, that's the position that David is in here. David is hurting, and David wants to say something. 
He wants to explain himself. He wants to ask questions. There's things in this that David doesn't understand. He wants to speak. And of course, the problem is that when we say something out of pain, it's usually not good. We, we tend to lash out or we tend to get consumed with defending ourselves or, or maybe we even say things that aren't true that besmirts the character of God. And the thing about speaking out of our pain is that people listen. That's what David addresses here. David knows that if he says something, if he lets his pain get the better of him and starts speaking foolishly, David says that there are wicked people who are listening to him. And they might take David's words as an excuse for their unbelief. They might hear David and go, look, that's the great David. Look how much faith helps you. Faith is no good. Look at David. So they could use David's words as an excuse to entrench themselves in their unbelief. Or, or they might take David's words and use them against him. There are people who will take your words when you say something foolish when you're hurting and twist it a little bit and, and use it as bullets to fire back at you. And David knows that might happen. He knows that if he speaks, it might harden his enemies. It might arm his enemies. Or if he speaks, it might harm the faith of his friends. There's a great picture of this in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm of Asaph. And Asaph is lamenting life in this upside-down world. And Asaph is talking about how it so often seems in this life like the wicked prosper while the people who are committed to God seem to suffer the most. And Asaph is going, where's the reward for serving God? Now, Now, about halfway through that psalm, God gives Asaph perspective. It helps Asaph see the bigger picture. But right before that, Asaph explains what would have happened if he had spoken out of his pain. This is Psalm 73, verses 14 and 15. Psalm 73, verses 14 and 15, Asaph says, For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Do you see what Asaph's saying? He's saying if he would have spoken out of his pain, that he would have harmed the faith of these believers around him. So there's a couple reasons why David is trying to guard his words in his suffering. He doesn't want to arm his enemies. He doesn't want to harm the faith of his friends. So when we're not careful with our words and our suffering, we can do damage. I know we tend to think of sins of the tongue as some of the smaller sins that we commit. But that's really not the case. The the Bible presents sins of the tongue as some of the most destructive sins that we can engage in. That's the way James says it. James says that our, our words are like sparks that can set a whole forest ablaze. Right? How many families, how many friendships, how many churches, how many testimonies have been burned to the ground because we used our pain as an excuse to speak recklessly. And one of the things that David had learned in his suffering is that he needed to guard his tongue carefully, learn to be silent. I know we're in a world that is constantly telling us that we constantly always need to vent whatever we're feeling, right? So you experience something and you need to let everybody know about it right away. You need to send out a tweet or you need to have an Instagram post or a TikTok video or you need something so everybody always knows what you're thinking and feeling. But that's just not the case. In fact, David doesn't just say that he's going to filter his words. Did you notice the word that David used? 
David says he's going to muzzle his mouth. I mean, that's a pretty strong way to describe it, isn't it? Muzzle his mouth. We tend to think of wisdom as the ability to say the right thing in the right moment. That's true. But oftentimes, wisdom is just the ability to know when not to say anything at all. And David knew that this was a time when he didn't need to speak. Look at how he continues in verses 2 and 3. He says, but as for me, I'm sorry, I'm still in Psalm 73, back to Psalm 39. I was mute with silence, I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. Do you see what David is describing? So David is staying quiet on the outside, but he's still in turmoil on the inside. So he's calm externally, but there's still this storm raging internally. And it's like the longer he stays quiet, the more pressure is building in his heart. It's sort of like, a, think of how a hot water heater works. You know, your, your water heater, you set the temperature on your water heater and it has that heating element that heats your water up. And when it gets to the temperature, it cuts off. But water heaters can malfunction sometimes where it doesn't cut off at the temperature. So it just keeps heating the water up and it gets hotter and hotter and the pressure can build and build and build until eventually the tank would rupture. And that's why hot water heaters have a, a relief valve on them, right? So if the pressure gets high enough, that valve opens up and some of that pressure can get let out. Some of that hot water can come spewing out the relief valve. So this pressure's building in David's heart. What's the relief valve? Well, look at what David says. Verse 3, into verse 4, David says, Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord Make me to know my end. David finally speaks, but what's he doing here? Who does he speak to? God. This is, this is the pressure relief valve of the Christian life. It's, it's prayer. There are times when we need to be quiet publicly, but in those times we need to pour out our hearts to God privately. So instead of ignoring your struggles or venting your struggles, pray your struggles. Okay, so David is learning to be quiet publicly, and at the same time, he is going to pour his heart out to God. So suffer quietly. Here's the second thing. Number two, suffer wisely. There, there's something about trials that makes us think more deeply about life, right? Most of the time, we go through life only thinking about the surface level, trivial sorts of things, but suffering all of a sudden makes you think at a deeper level. Look at verse 4. Here's David's prayer. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. David says, Lord, make me know this. That means impress this on my heart. So David's prayer in his suffering is, Lord, teach me something. What is it he wants God to teach him in his suffering? David says, Lord, make me know my end. My end means my death. Now, he's not asking God to give him details about his death, like when he's going to die or how he's going to die. But David is asking God to drive into his heart how near and how certain death is. He says, that second line, Lord, help me know the measure of my days. That means 
Help me be aware of how brief my days on this earth are. Help me know, David says, how frail I am. So David is asking God to give him an awareness of how fleeting and how fragile life is. That's what he wants God to teach him in his suffering. This life is so fleeting and it's over so quickly. This might sound um, this might sound a little morbid, but you and I really are easy to kill, right? It's, it doesn't take very much. Just think of the funerals that you've been to in your life and the wide array of things that people die from, from, from drownings to people falling out of deer stands to, to accidental gunshots to I, the very first funeral I did was a motorcycle accident. I've done numerous funerals for people who just lost their balance and fell and hit their head, or just a mutated cell that turns into a cancerous growth, or a faulty heart valve, or one little weak spot on the wall of an artery that bubbles up and then bursts. It, it doesn't take much. Now we tend to go through life convincing ourselves that we're going to live forever, but David is asking God to drive deeply into his heart how fragile and how brief life really is. There, there's a Latin phrase that People often would get uh, put on their tombstones in Europe. If, if, in fact, if you go into very old cemeteries here in America, you'll run into it sometimes. They'll have on their tombstone the phrase, memento mori. And it means remember death or remember you must die. So it's like every tombstone was meant to be crying out, hey, death is coming for you too. That's what David is asking God to remind him of. Look at verse 5. David says, indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. That A handbreadth was one of the smallest units of measurement that they used. It was equivalent to your four fingers put together. That's how they would measure things. So just a couple inches across. And the point that David is making is that we don't measure our days in miles. We don't measure our days in meters. We measure our days in inches. Maybe for us, the better word would be millimeters. I mean, think about it. If you, if you look at the, the timeline of human history, how much distance does your little life cover on the timeline of history? Hardly a millimeter. We're just, we're just dots on the timeline of history. But we don't like to think about that. T.S. Eliot said that that humankind can bear very little reality. In other words, we, we don't like to think about the hard, deep realities of life. I think I've shared with you before the way Blaise Pascal described life. Pascal was great Christian uh, mathematician and philosopher back in the 17th century. And Pascal said that life is like a great big party that we're all invited to attend. So you go to this party and Pascal said there's music and a band's playing and there's great food and everybody's at this party and there's great conversations when all of a sudden, he says, a monster comes kicking through one of the doors at the party and he mauls one of the guests right in front of everybody and then he drags this bloody corpse back out the door and Pascal said that everybody just kind of stands there for a minute frozen in fear. But after just a few minutes, the band starts playing again. And everybody picks up with the conversations and starts going back to the buffet for a little more, little more food. But he said, the problem is that same scene keeps getting repeated every few minutes. The monster, every few minutes, keeps busting in the door and dragging another person out until eventually it becomes clear that he's coming at some point for everybody there. But everybody at the party still tries to distract themselves 
with the music and the food so they don't think about the fact that the monster's coming. Pascal said, that's, what, that's how we tend to live life. That we're at this party and this monster of death keeps barging in and dragging people away all around us and yet we try to go through life pretending that it's not happening. Using every sort of mind-numbing entertainment possible to act like there's nothing going on but something is going on. Death is coming. And David is asking God to help him live under the reality of death. In fact, look at that last phrase in verse 5. David says, Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. That word vapor is the, the Hebrew word hevel. It's, it's one of the most frequently used words by Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And it's, it's really the idea of, of like breath or wind. So think, think of how it is when you go outside on a cold morning and you breathe and you see your breath just for a second and then it's gone. And it's not like you can grab hold of it because there's nothing solid to grab hold of. Or maybe think of it like you're blowing bubbles with one of your little kids outside and these bubbles come out and they're sparkly and shiny and they dance around on the wind and then poof, they're gone. And there's nothing left. There's no substance to it. This is the word that is often translated as vanity by Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that everything is vanity. It's describing life as fleeting like a little soap bubble. It's here, and then poof, it's gone, and so much of what we live for is, is empty. That's what David is describing here. Verse 6, David says, Surely every man walks about like a shadow, Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. David says, we're like shadows. Your translation might read, we're like phantoms. You, you might puff out your chest and think you're something, but you and I are nothing more than ghosts. We pass just like the wind. And David says, we run around keeping ourselves busy. And what do we run around keeping ourselves busy for? Well, he says we keep ourselves busy to heap up riches. But what happens to all that stuff we heap up after we're gone? David says we heap up riches and we don't know who gathers it. In other words, we heap up all this stuff and then what happens when we're dead? I'll tell you what's going to happen. About 50% of the stuff you spend your life heaping up, your family's going to put in a truck and they're going to take the goodwill because nobody wants it. And if your family's like most families, they're going to end up fighting over the other 50%. And there are going to be people in your family who aren't going to talk again for the rest of their lives because they're mad at each other over who got grandma's favorite vase. Right? And David is saying all this stuff that we tend to live for, we busy ourselves to heap up riches, and it's like a soap bubble. There's no substance to any of it. It's, it's a puff of smoke. So this is the lesson that God is asking David to help him learn. The point is that there are lessons that we can learn in suffering that we won't learn at any other time in life. And David is praying and asking God to help him learn this lesson in his suffering of how fleeting life is, of how empty so much of what we dedicate our time to in life is really all about. Suffer wisely. Here's the, the third thing. Number three, suffer hopefully. So verse 7 is really the, the turning point of this psalm. Look at verse 7. David says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope 
is in you. In other words, in, in light of how short and how uncertain life is, what are we supposed to do? What can we rely on? Is there anything that's not like a soap bubble? Is there anything that's not like a puff of smoke? Is there anything solid? And David says there is. My hope is in you. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Here the psalmist steps off the sand and puts his foot on the rock. Happy is the man who can say to the Lord, My hope is in thee. That this is the same conclusion Solomon comes to in Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, you know Solomon spends most of that book saying, we're all, we're all just like dust in the wind. We're all, we're all just kind of passing by and wasting so much of our time. And Solomon says that everything in this life under the sun, disconnected from God, is empty. So his conclusion is, how does, he, how does he summarize it at the end of Ecclesiastes? Solomon says, so this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, if, if there's nothing on this li- in this life, if there's nothing on this world, if there's nothing on this side of eternity that has any weight to it, that's solid, then we better look on the other side. And Solomon's saying the only solid place where we can put our feet down is in God. But thinking about God immediately reminds David of how far short he falls. Because look at how he immediately turns to verse 8. So he mentions his hope in God, which reminds him of his own sin. David says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. David is still experiencing God's discipline for his sin. That's why he's suffering. And so now his mind goes back to his sin. And he asked God to deliver him, to deliver him from the guilt of his sin, to deliver him from the power of his sin, to deliver him from the consequences of his sin. So David is now asking God to lift his hand of discipline. We talked about God's discipline a little bit uh, last week. When, When you see the word discipline in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, it's usually a word that means to train a child. So discipline has to do with the the whole process of training up a child. It's instructing and educating and correcting. And I think you could put God's discipline of his children into three categories. First, there's what David's dealing with here. There's what's called corrective discipline. That's where God disciplines us for our sin, where God corrects us because we've made some sinful choice. We've gone in a sinful direction, a A great example of this in the Bible is the the Corinthian church. Do you remember with the church of Corinth where Paul writes and says that that many in that church had become sick and some had even died because of the sinful way that they were taking part in the Lord's Supper. That was God's corrective discipline. God sent this trial to correct them for their sin. But that's not the only way that God instructs us. Think of it this way. If the only time you ever instructed your children was when you were correcting them, what kind of parent would you be? A really bad parent. So God doesn't just instruct us when he corrects us. There's also what you see in the Bible you could label as preventative discipline. That means sometimes God sends hardship, God sends trials into the lives of his children in order to keep us from a sinful path, in order to prevent us from developing some sinful characteristic in our in our lives a a good example of that would be paul in second corinthians 
Do you remember where Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about his thorn in the flesh? Where there's this episode of severe suffering that God has sent into Paul's life. And why had God sent that into Paul's life? Do you remember what Paul says? He says that God sent that so that he would not be exalted above measure. In other words, God sent that hardship into Paul's life to prevent Paul from becoming proud. So sometimes God uses preventative discipline. And then the third would be what you could just call educational discipline. I mean, sometimes God sends hardship. He sends trials into his children's lives, not to correct us for sin, not to prevent us from falling into sin, but just to teach us something about him, to teach us something important about life. Job is a great example of that. You remember Job was the most righteous man on the earth in his day. And Job went through unimaginable suffering. Why? Did, did, did Job experience that suffering because of some sin? Was God correcting him? No. Did Job experience that suffering to prevent him from falling into sin? Well, not, not that we're told about. So then why, what was God's purpose in Job's suffering? Well, we know part of the answer. Listen to what Job says at the end of his suffering. This is, this is Job writing in Job 42, verse 5. He says, I have, speaking to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. You see what Job is saying? Job came out on the other side of his suffering, understanding God in a way that he hadn't before. Job knew God more deeply on the back end of his suffering than he had on the front end. So, so God can use discipline. It can take all sorts of different forms. God can use it to accomplish all sorts of different purposes. And David's discipline here is corrective discipline, and he knows that. So he immediately begins to pray about his sin. Look at verses 9 through 11. David says, I was mute. I did not open my mouth. Why? Why did he not open his mouth? Because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I'm consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. So why had David held his tongue in his suffering? Because he realized that his trials were from God. David knew there was nothing that came into his life that was not first filtered through the gracious hands of God. And David did not want to start saying things that might be taken as him grumbling against God, right? If, if we believe that everything that comes into our lives is ordained by God, then when I begin to complain against the circumstances in my life, who am I really complaining against? I'm really complaining against God. And so David is guarding his words because he doesn't want to be taken as if he's grumbling against God. He's the potter. And we're the clay. And of course, the clay is not always going to understand what the potter's up to. Right? Think, think again of Job's suffering. Right? When Job is going through ridiculous amounts of trials and family members passing away and his whole wealth stripped away and his health falling apart, this terrible stuff is happening. We just saw that a little part of that is God's using it to teach him a lesson about who God is. But that's just the tip of the iceberg of what God was doing in Job's suffering. I mean, think about it. Here we are thousands of years after Job, and we're still learning about God 
through Job's suffering. How many Christians have there been over the millennia who have found strength in their suffering? Who have been able to continue clinging to the Lord and worshiping the Lord through their trials because of what they learned about suffering from Job? Now, is there any way that Job could have ever fathomed that God was going to accomplish all of that through his suffering? Is there any way Job could have ever fathomed that God was going to use his suffering to strengthen millions of Christians for the rest of human history? Well, of course not. So how foolish would it be for me to think that I should always understand God's purposes in the trials that he sends into my life? Of course we won't always understand. But there are times when we just have to put our hands over our mouths and trust God. That's what David's saying here. He knows that God is in control of what's coming to his life, so he's going to put his hand over his mouth, lest he say something foolish, and he is going to trust God. And that leads us to the fourth thing. Number four, suffer prayerfully. David comes back at the end of this psalm. He comes back to petition. Look at verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. For I am a stranger with you. A sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength. Before I go away. And am no more. Do you see how three times. And in three different ways in verse 12. David asked God to hear him. This is a common theme in Psalms of Lament. Where you'll find the psalmist begging God to pay attention, begging God to hear his prayers. That's what David is doing here. David says, hear my prayer, give ear to my cry, do not be silent at my tears. He's even pleading his tears. He's hoping that his tears might arouse God's compassion. You know how it is as a parent. That sometimes if you see your child crying, you, you just naturally, you want to move toward them to help. You see your child crying and it just melts your heart, so you want to do something about it. That's, what, that's how David is raising his tears to God. He's convinced that God is not apathetic about the tears of his people. Listen to David in Psalm 56, verses 8 and 9, talking about bringing your tears. He says to God, you number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. David believed that his tears were so precious to God that it's as if God kept his tears in a bottle. It's like God was keeping measure, keeping track of David's tears. Ralph Davis said on this verse, David's God is a God who can count. Tears and tragedies and troubles are not forgotten. It's as if Yahweh has a bottle to collect them, a book for recording them. Our tears are claims on the compassions of God. So David is not just pleading, he's pleading his tears before God. <coughs> and did you notice what David called himself in verse 12? He calls himself a stranger and a sojourner. Now, what does that language mean? Do you remember how it worked in Israel? Strangers and sojourners were foreigners who would, who would join in with the nation of Israel. So they would be allowed to incorporate into Israel, 
but, but they could never have any land. They weren't allowed to own property in Israel. They couldn't have any sort of lasting inheritance. So strangers and sojourners could move in, but they never were a- a- allowed to really settle in Israel. Their position was always tenuous, like they never really belonged there. And David is saying that that's, that's what he was. His sufferings reminded him that he was a stranger and a sojourner. His sufferings reminded him that he's nothing more than a pilgrim in this world. Right? This is another thing that our sufferings do for us is it's so easy in life to start living like this world really is our home. To start living like this is what we were made for and this is all there is. But there's something about going through trials. There's something about going through hardship that reminds us that this world is not our home. That this isn't what we were made for. There's that line in um, that Laura Story song from years ago where she writes, When friends betray us and when darkness seems to win, we know that pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. Pain reminds our hearts that this is not our home. And that's what David is saying, is this suffering reminds him that, that he is just a sojourner here. We, we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. But David doesn't just say that we're strangers. Notice how he words it in verse 12. David says, for I am a stranger, key phrase, with you. So our existence here is fleeting and it's fragile, but it's with God. Meaning we're not pilgrims on our own. We're pilgrims here, but our God walks with us on this pilgrimage. We're strangers with God. Now, let me be quick to say, we were once strangers, not with God, but from God. Okay, that's, that's the position that our sin had put us in. We were strangers from the God who made us. Because the God who made us also has absolute rights over our lives. The God who made us has the authority to tell us how to live our lives. And he's done that. And our problem in our sin is that we refuse that. We refuse to bend our knee to God's authority. We thumb our noses at him and say, I'm going to live how I want to live my own way. And our sin makes us, positions us as the enemies of God, under the judgment of God, strangers from God. But God graciously remedied that problem in Christ so that, so that Jesus, God's son, came to this earth and he was treated like he were God's enemy. He was treated like he was the one who had offended God so that those of us who really are God's enemies now through faith in Jesus can be treated as sons and daughters. We are adopted in. We're given a seat at the table. We're no longer strangers from God. David says we are now strangers in this world with God. So even as we suffer... We don't suffer alone. We have a God, David says, who walks with us in our suffering. So Christian, take heart. Learn from David's lessons here. Learn learn when you need to put your hand over your mouth in your suffering and trust God. Ask God to teach you in your suffering. To help drive home into your heart these lessons about how fleeting and how fragile life is. Make sure that instead of venting what's going on inside to everyone around you in a way that might 
that might entrench unbelievers or harm the faith of believers, make sure that you're pouring your heart out to God. That you're going to God who promises that he walks with you in the trials. Let's go to the Lord for a word of prayer.